0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Today and tomorrow, another chance to hear our interviews with the men and women running to be Colorado's next governor. Today, the Republican candidates. Voters will whittle down the field next week, and primaries are open to any unaffiliated voter. Let's start with Victor Mitchell of Castle Pines. I caught up with him at Bluffs Regional Park for an afternoon walk with Mitchell's wife, Amy, and their two golden retrievers.
1: It's a wonderful hike, it's a three and a half mile loop. And some of the best views in all of Colorado. I also get to know a lot of your neighbors on this hike. I've been walking this hike for almost 20 years. Oh, really? And it never gets old.
0: (laughs) How long have you lived in this area?
1: Uh, Almost 25 years now. And I started a company uh, here in Arapahoe County in January 1996. And like many people, we came here, we didn't have any intention of staying. We just fell in love with Colorado. People have been so generous uh, to our family, welcoming to our family. We didn't know know a single person when we came here. Two of our three kids ended up being born here, and it's become our forever home.
0: Mitchell has run six companies, accruing enough wealth to self-fund his campaign for governor thus far. He says he started his first business at 21.
1: You know, the reason I started that company was because I was paying my way through college as a limousine driver, as a chauffeur. And I kept telling the owner of the company that he wasn't running his business right. I kept on saying, you know, you could do things better this way and you could do things better that way. And he said, Mitchell, you're fired. So I figured the only way to get back at him was to start my own company. So I started my own company when I was 21 years old. We were old enough to own the vehicles but not old enough to, to uh, drive them because the insurance required 25 years or older. And the irony of that story is the, per- the company that ultimately fired me was ultimately the company that acquired me many years later.
0: Let's listen to our conversation with Victor Mitchell and CPR's Ryan Warner from April 25th. His first question, what's the single biggest problem facing Colorado and how is Mitchell going to fix it?
1: Well, the biggest problem facing Colorado is 40% of Coloradans have health insurance, uh, but can't meet their deductibles or co-payments. I mean, so you're basically, we've got all these, we're very healthy people. Uh, We have a lot of young people, especially here in the metro area, and uh, it's it's just criminal that, that people, you know, the premiums are so high, the deductibles are so high that if you can afford to pay the premiums, you often can't, don't have the cash to meet the deductibles. So we're basically paying for a service we can't use. When you
2: say 40% of Coloradans, where is that figure coming from?
1: That's come from private insurance, looking at average people's savings that they have, and you're looking at the average deductibles, and you, it comes out to close to 40%. There has not been a specific study. The Democrats love to talk about that 95% of Coloradans now have health insurance because of the... Medicaid expansion. But, you know, Medicaid doesn't work for most people. It's it's low quality. It's rationed care. Most doctors won't accept the reimbursements because the they won't accept Medicaid because the reimbursements are so low. Uh,
2: Let me say that you propose some key changes to how Coloradans receive health care, namely eliminating Colorado's health exchange. Correct. I'll say that as of January, around 8% of Coloradans were buying insurance through that marketplace. And you would also roll back the expansion of Medicaid, uh, which uh, I would say uh, others would argue has brought more coverage to people. Uh, That expansion increased enrollment by 400,000 in Colorado. So how would those folks get insurance under the changes you'd make?
1: Oh, insurance would be Unchanged, they just wouldn't get it through Medicaid, um, but they would get. The, we want. I want to have full transparency in pricing. So if you go to any healthcare clinic or any hospital, any provider in our state, they have to tell you these are the cash prices, these are the insurance prices. I want to reduce mandates on insurance providers so they can have more customized insurance options for people. And then I want to basically provide, basically use this excess funds that we currently are using for Medicaid expansion to provide entrepreneurial block grants to nurse practitioner clinics, physician assistant clinics. Mental health professionals, we would have a team of – we would basically have a committee of of medical professionals, retired doctors and nurses and the like. And they would study people's business plans. And then if the state approved it, the state would fund up to 50 percent of their annual operating budget. If they didn't meet the key metrics that they had promised the state, then the following year they would lose the funding.
2: You have said in television ads, as well as on the campaign trail, that you're a political outsider. Uh, But you did serve one term in the state legislature from 2007 to 2009, representing Douglas County. You were part of a campaign that thwarted a 2011 tax increase that was on the ballot for schools. You were also co-chair of Mitt Romney's presidential (laughs) campaign in Douglas County. What is it about this election year, this race, that has you casting yourself as an outsider? Because
1: I am an outsider. I mean, for 31 years... I've built private companies. I've never worked for anyone other than myself. I've built very successful private companies, six of them to be, be exact. <laughs> if I served 10 years ago, I served for one term in the state legislature and was very I loved it. I, I represented one of the most conservative districts in the state. But then I went right back to the private sector. I'm not taking any special interest money. I'm not taking any, uh, accepting any political endorsements. So I'm the only person that's actually put forward very specific, bold ideas to transform a lot of our bureaucracies like we just talked about with Medicaid. Uh, but I think it's last that my opponents copy me all the time. on trying to call themselves outsiders as well. But you, I mean, I'm, a, I'm the only true outsider businessman in this race. You talked
2: about funding your own campaign uh, and not as a result taking outside donations. Why that route?
1: We are taking small donations from – we've taken in thousands of small donations from grassroots people. But we're not taking, um, you know, basically special interest money, lobbyist money. Um, We're certainly not uh, accepting any political endorsements because I think with political endorsements come political favors. And the same thing goes with special interests.
2: So you're saying that none of those individual donations come from lobbyists?
1: No, none whatsoever. And our average donation
2: is $20.18. CDOT says it has a $9 billion backlog of projects – Many of Colorado's roads and bridges are in need of repair, and uh, this is as an influx of people come to Colorado uh, with increased congestion as a result. There could be a ballot measure this year from the business community to raise taxes for transportation. Would you support it?
1: Absolutely not. I'm not supportive of any new taxes or any bond increases whatsoever. Matter of fact, I want to put our government on a diet. Uh, the let me t- be very specific. I have put forward a plan to get $2 billion into roads and infrastructure without increasing taxes or fees by reforming the whole uh, CDOT bureaucracy. I'm bringing in an outsider to limit their total overhead to no more than 20 percent. Right now, about 30 cents of every dollar of CDOT's budget goes to contractors. The people actually build our roads and infrastructure. I want to change that to 80 percent. I also want to deploy all their cash and cash equivalents that's on their books today. And I also want to change an obscure committee that's in the, uh, called the Legislative Audit Committee. I want to change that from financial to performance-based auditing to look for ways to drive waste and inefficiency out of state bureaucracies. I'll say that
2: CDOT is already under audits by the legislature. You think you can free up up to $2 billion with this?
1: You misunderstood what I said because there, there, there's, there's something called the Legislative Audit Committee, but they only do financial auditing. Yeah. They don't do performance auditing. So they, they're not, their mandate is not to come in and bring in a KPMG or an EKS&H, a large accounting firm to come in and say – CDOT, we we want to right-size you, and and you really only need 2,100 employees instead of 3,300 employees. And by the way, this type of information technology, this type of traffic sciences should be implemented. They, They don't do that.
2: Later this week, teachers from around the state will walk out of their classrooms to protest low pay, among other issues. The head of the Colorado Education Association says the state underfunds schools by $822 million annually. First off, do you think that the teachers are right to walk out?
1: No, I don't think they're right to work out, but I do think walk out. But I do think they are terribly undercompensated, and I think that we should have a collective understanding where everything is on the table, including reforming para, um, asking possibly for um, summer schooling. A um, more spe- state
2: pension fund. Exactly. Is, you
1: know, the public pension fund, the largest pension fund we have in our state is a $32 billion unfunded liability. So I think everything should be on the table. But there's no question we abysmally compensate as far as salary goes, our educators. So well, that's if, why we have shortages of math and science teachers across the whole state, most especially in our rural communities.
2: If you say that they're paid abysmally, uh, help me understand your thinking about why you don't think it's appropriate that they walk out.
1: Because you have to look at the whole package. What, the way that works right now is they have an extraordinarily generous retirement program, but a very, very low annual wage. So we, want, we have to look at everything. We also want to bring but, a lot. Why
2: shouldn't they be able to walk out is, is my question.
1: Well, they because I don't think public pension, uh, public employees should have the right to strike. I mean, I think that's just bad for our state. There's other way they have other benefits. You know, we're, we should be a completely at will state. And uh, I don't, I don't, don't support public, uh, pe- public employees walking out, especially teachers that are crit- provide critical services.
2: On to higher education, Vic Mitchell. You're very passionate about STEM: science, technology, engineering, and math. You want more STEM graduates, absolutely, to fill tech jobs, absolutely. And you propose directing every penny of state support for colleges and universities to STEM degrees exclusively versus, Correct. say, liberal arts.
1: Absolutely. Why? Because right now, if you want to pursue a degree at CU, for example, in electrical engineering or physics, those are the most expensive degrees. But they're also the most relevant degrees we want for a modern economy. We have, in some studies, as much as five times as many high-paying jobs available today than kids who are actually graduating with these relevant degrees. We want to, these are the toughest degrees to pursue. We want to make them the least for affordable. Uh, we want to make them the most affordable, so they're the most because they're the most relevant. But my my higher education plan goes beyond than just uh, making the costs of STEM degrees less expensive. My higher education degree also calls for a complete freeze of all higher education funding for the entire term of my administration. So no one is going to see a tuition increase during the entire term of my administration. I also want to drive down the high cost of student housing. Uh, Student housing is roughly a third of the cost to send a kid to college today. It's uh, up to $13,000 a year to to house your kid for eight months at CU. I mean, it's ridiculously too expensive. It's out of reach, and and our, our kids are taking on enormous debts in large part because Uh, Higher education has become so expensive.
2: A Magellan poll shows that immigration is a top issue for Colorado Republicans. Where do you think you most differ from uh, the other Republicans in this race on the issue of immigration?
1: Well, I can tell you one fundamental difference between myself and my opponent, George Bush's cousin, is I support holding civilly liable any elected official that refuses to cooperate. I, you're making a
2: reference to Walker Stapleton. Yes, there. sir.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to basically hold any elected official, whether it's a mayor, or it's a count, town council member, or a county commissioner, if they refuse to cooperate with federal ICE agents, they, should be held civilly, they could be held civilly liable for that.
2: What would that look like? Give me into the details of that. So So, a mayor might be prosecuted under that for what? Civilly,
1: yes. And uh, that's exactly right. I mean, if we work together and we allow a criminal alien back into our community and they commit mayhem in our community, there's real consequences to that. I also support um, basically defunding sanctuary cities as well. Uh, I think that that should come directly out of the general fund. I mean, if we can't have a situation where the mayor say, I swear on the Bible, I swear on the Constitution, to uphold the Constitution. And by the way, we don't like this law, so we're just going to ignore it. We're going to enforce this law that we do like. I mean, that's anarchy. Change the law if you don't like it. But you can't simply just ignore it.
0: An excerpt of our conversation with businessman and former state legislator, Vic Mitchell, recorded April 25th. He's a Republican running for governor. You can hear the rest of the interview in our podcast, Who's Going to Govern? Walker Stapleton is the state's treasurer. Now he wants to be governor. He's running for the Republican nomination. Today, we're listening back to all our conversations with Republican gubernatorial candidates. Primary day is next Tuesday. Ryan Warner met up with Stapleton on a weekend at a Denver soccer field. Stapleton was cheering on his 10-year-old son, Craig, and talking policy.
3: There's going to be a lot of huge economic challenges that this state is going to face over the next couple of years. And yes, my son just got a goal. You must be lucky. (laughs) You must be lucky, Ryan.
2: Stapleton's family roots in Colorado go back four generations. He moved to Colorado from the East Coast in 2003. He's been involved in tech startups, was an investment banker, and led a real estate investment company. He says he's frustrated by the pace of government decision-making.
3: If you're running a company, as, as I was the CEO of a company, you make decisions and you score it again. Two goals. See, I'm going to throw my hat on the field if he gets a hat trick. In, in government, the analogy I draw is it's kind of like uh, being given a pickaxe and being told to, to uh, make a hole in a dam. Uh, And once you make that hole, the water can come rushing through. Uh, But it takes a long time.
2: And Stapleton says he'd move faster and more decisively than the state's current governor, John Hickenlooper.
3: I want to be much more proactive and engaging in the legislative process. You have to be willing to expend capital in doing so and take a lot of arrows. But uh, that's what it means to me uh, to be the CEO of the state.
0: Let's listen to Ryan's conversation with Walker Stapleton, recorded May 21st.
2: What is the single greatest
3: problem Colorado faces, and how would you solve it? I think it's infrastructure. I think everybody is impacted by traffic, and anybody that wants to have more family time with loved ones, anybody that wants to be more efficient in a professional context has been impacted by our infrastructure problems in the state, which have really grown exponentially as the population has increased by more than a million people over the last decade.
2: There are a lot of potential solutions floating around. The legislature, first off, directed more money to transportation in this most recent session, and there's the possibility of ballot measures. This election, there could be a sales tax increase on the ballot to pay for roads and Transit, uh, there could be bonding. Do you support either of those proposals? I
3: support the bonding proposal. I do not support the sales tax proposal in its current form. I believe the department can and should do more. I believe we have dedicated sources of revenue in the general fund that we could and should be using for further bonding for our roads and infrastructure. I believe asking voters for a tax increase is the cart before the horse. And if you look, it it has not worked when it's been referred to the ballot. And
2: and yet the request potentially for a sales tax increase for roads is not coming from government itself, but from the business community that says this is a priority. true. What
3: what is it that you see that they don't do? So last year I got in a I would say heated argument with Shalen Bott, who was the then head of the Department of Transportation, because he made a decision that the department was going to spend $150 million on new offices for bureaucrats while the rest of us sat in traffic. And I told him that that was misplaced priorities. If you were to cut across all of our state agencies... 10% of executive overhead. And by executive overhead, I mean everything from consultants to staplers, to paper, to conferences that people attend in all our departments. You would save approximately $150 million on an annual basis. And we have plenty of money uh, in the general fund that we can and should be using for infrastructure. Just
2: a couple of points. I'll say that Seed Out at the time of requesting that money for its headquarters said that it was a question of life and safety, that the headquarters that they were in were ded- deteriorating. There were accessibility issues. Let's talk about education. Thousands of teachers demonstrated at the Capitol and elsewhere last month calling for higher pay. In Pueblo, teachers recently went on strike. Statewide salaries average about $52,000, roughly 15 percent below the national average. It's much lower in some
3: rural areas. Should Colorado teachers be paid more? I would love to find a way for Colorado teachers to be paid more, but we have to recognize we have structural flaws in education finance in the state that have to be fixed. And the analogy I draw, Ryan, is that If you have three holes in the bottom of the bucket and you keep telling people I need more water to pour into the bucket, but the bucket is empty every time you cross a room, you have to fix the three holes in the bottom of the bucket. And one of our biggest holes is our pension system, uh, which sucks more than 20 percent of a teacher's salary uh, into backfilling obligations with a bankrupt retirement system and doesn't go to teacher salary and doesn't go in the classroom. And if you look, uh, the average public school class is approximately 25 students. That's more than $300,000 of of funding uh, in the average public school class, fifty thousand uh, dollars, which you just pointed out, is about the average salary of a teacher, so that 's three hundred thousand dollars of funding, fifty thousand dollars for the teacher 's salary. What happens to the other two hundred and fifty thousand? If you look, the amount of teachers has grown by about seven or eight uh, percent and and the amount of administrative overhead has grown by more than twenty percent in the last decade
2: para this is the state pension system yeah. we have to talk about the fact that the legislature passed. A bill to shore up PARA, which had a thirty-two billion dollar uh, unfunded gap. That's correct. Uh, and it will ask state employees and teachers uh, and others to contribute more to shore the fund up. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the state will be contributing more over the next few
3: years. Give which is the, taxpayers, by the way. The,
2: which is taxpayers, <laughs> yes.
3: exactly. Yep.
2: I, I want you to give th- what the legislature did a grade.
3: I would give a it F. a C, a C, a solid a C. C, maybe a C plus.
2: There were reports that in the final hours of this debate, which came to the last days of session, that you were making calls to some Republicans in the legislature to kill the measure. Is no, that true?
3: absolutely not. That is not true. And and uh, no Republican would ever tell you that because it's not true. I wanted to try and get the best deal possible until the last minute possible. I was not physically even at the legislature. I think I was asleep by the time they finally passed the deal, uh, which was, you know, 30 minutes prior to midnight. But I think that it was a necessary step. And I would and if I had been governor at the time, I would have and I, I, I would urge governor hickenlooper to sign uh, the bill because the cost of not doing anything outweighs the cost of action in this case
2: you support the uh, expansion of charter schools briefly tell me why
3: well you know uh, Tom Boesberg is, I would consider, a friend of mine. He's the he, superintendent he, of Denver yes, Public Schools? It, Denver Public Schools, our largest public school district. He is, is not a Republican, uh, but I have great respect for Tom. And Tom and I agree on two chief things, I think. One is that the pension system has been an al- albatross around the neck of school budgets all across Colorado. And the second is it Competition in public education works. And Tom has been a champion for charter schools. And as a result, there has been a significant proliferation of charter schools in the Denver Public School District. I believe there's more teachers actually teaching in charter schools than uh, in public schools as of last year. That's a model that we should take across the state of Colorado.
2: I want to talk a bit about health care. You've said you would dismantle Colorado's health exchange. That's a hallmark of Obamacare. So is the Medicaid expansion. If you're elected governor, would there be fewer Coloradans on
3: Medicaid? It's about one in four right now. There would be a managed Medicaid model. What does it mean, managed Medicaid? Managed Medicaid means is that as the federal government proves itself more and more inept with a capital I at solving our healthcare needs, they will wash their hands of this problem and they will return back to the states in the form of of grants, uh, money, and they will say to the governors at the state level, hey, you know, you can figure out the future of Medicaid expansion in your particular state. And a managed Medicaid model means a proliferation of community healthcare centers. I've got three young kids and I've got a little clinic at King Supers across the street. When my kids get sick, I take my kids across the street to an RN and I pay 10 to $15 for a copay. The pharmacy is right there. If I took them to their pediatrician, I'd be paying four times as much and the insurance company would be billing me six or seven times as much. That is not a cost-effective model. If you go to Denver Health to the emergency room on a Friday night, it looks like Grand Central Station. And the reason is is because you have indigents there, people that have Medicaid, you have people that have private health insurance, you have uh, people that are seeking shelter from the cold, and then you have the people that actually have the gunshots and the heart attacks and the emergency services. That is not an effective way of providing emergency care, and it's not effective from a cost standpoint either. There has to be a managed system where the people that actually are there for emergency services are there for emergency services, and some people that have Medicaid aren't going to be able to show up in the Denver Health emergency room.
2: You would just say they can't be there?
3: I would say, well, they can be there, but they're not going to be able to be treated there.
2: Your campaign has just placed its first TV ad with a claim that I'd like to explore. Yes,
3: please. I was the only treasurer in the country with the courage to support Donald Trump's tax cuts.
2: In fact, treasurers in Kentucky and Utah wrote op-eds in support. Missouri's treasurer went on uh, to Washington to lobby for it. So do you stand by that claim?
3: Absolutely. We went off the official White House press release for the tax deal. And on that official White House press release, I was the only treasurer listed. And as I told... But that, but that doesn't as I told, say
2: that you are the only treasurer to support it.
3: But it, but we were the only treasurer listed. And I didn't have time. And I, I didn't actually care to go and poll my colleagues on a state-by-state basis as to whether they were supporting the tax plan. This Semantics of whether I was the first treasurer in the country or, or one of the first, uh, or not. What's important? What's actually important is what the tax plan is going to do for Colorado. And under I don't think it was president the first it was only it, as well the only or one of the only. I mean one of the first for for sure. Uh, and and we took we took that information based on the press release. And I think uh, rather than the semantics of whether I was the only or one of the only, I think what's important is what the tax plan is going to do for Coloradans, and it's going to give seventy five percent of the people in Colorado. Uh, a tax cut. The semantics of whether I was the only or one of the only or the first or one of the first is it is to me uh, not significant.
2: I think it's a question of whether you do your homework and whether you say what's right.
3: Well, we did do our homework because we took it off the White House press release. So
2: I want to ask you about where you stand with the Trump administration on immigration. Is there anything you disagree with the president about when it comes to that issue?
3: Well, I think immigration is a federal issue and needs to be dealt with by the federal government. I care to focus on what I can do as the governor of the state. The heart of the matter from a, from a state level is our problem with sanctuary cities in Colorado, specifically in Denver. It is unconscionable to me how somebody who has committed a crime as an illegal alien, specifically a felony, can be treated with more rights and protections than a law-abiding U.S. citizen.
2: As you know, there was another mass shooting at a school last week in Texas. Ten people died. Here in Colorado, the legislature just defeated a so-called red flag warning bill. It would have prevented people who are a risk to themselves or others from having a gun. Do you support that idea? Very briefly.
3: I support the concept and I support the spirit of the legislation, but I would not have supported that particular piece of legislation because of the arbitrary way in which due process was actually carried out. I preferred Senate Bill 270, which is now sitting on Governor Hickenlooper's desk, a a bipartisan product uh, that actually will enhance mental health services uh, and actually hopefully enhance reporting as well.
0: Walker Stapleton speaking with Ryan Warner on May 21st. You can hear more in our new podcast, Who's Going to Govern? Colorado's choosing its next governor, and the next big step are the primaries, which for the first time are open to any unaffiliated voter. You don't have to be a registered Republican or Democrat to cast a ballot. Greg Lopez is one of four running for the GOP's nomination. He invited us to join him at this year's Cinco de Mayo celebration in Denver's Civic Center Park. Ryan Warner takes it from here.
2: Lopez, the only Hispanic candidate in the race, used to be mayor of Parker. But it was his time in the Air Force that sparked a conversation with a voter who passed by his booth. Rebecca Monocolis of Littleton told him her father
4: is also an Air Force veteran. What did your dad do? fighter pilot, and he was stationed in Elmendorf, Alaska. Oh, well, wow. You know what? I was a weapon specialist. So okay. I would have loaded... So you helped his... I would have loaded his entire... You made him oh, good. Yeah. Wow. I would have loaded all his ammunition, making sure that if he wanted to hit something, it was going to work. Veterans
2: were also on Tracy Shaw's mind. She lives in Denver now, but...
4: I lived
0: in the Springs. I worked for counselors who tried to help them. The guys that were in the military were scared to talk to counselors. Because it would get to their superiors, so they wouldn't come in. How are we supposed to help them if they can't help themselves because of fear?
4: Right. Yeah, we got to change that whole narrative. One of the things that I heard from the uh, chaplains and the people inside the military, because I asked them, I said, "What's changed?" They said, "Greg, there was a day where it would take six months or five months to get them from the front lines to get them home." And they would be able to sell, kind of deprogram themselves, right? They would talk about my story. You would share your story. Now they're home within 48 hours.
2: Their conversation turned to guns. Lopez thinks the Second Amendment keeps people safe. He says, like driver's licenses, one state should respect another's concealed carry permit. And back to the military, he thinks there should be open carry on bases and at recruiting centers. Tracy Shaw liked what she heard, that Lopez would protect her rights and freedoms, she says.
0: Like guns, you know, the right to have and own own and have one, Um, talking about security, um, the right to have your privacy not taken away because they're afraid of what may happen. You know, those are just a couple of things. Lopez sat down for an in-depth interview in our studios May 8th. What is the greatest
2: problem facing Colorado, and how would you solve it?
4: You know, I think the greatest problem that's facing Colorado is just like the greatest problem that's facing our country. You know, we struggle in being able to have good dialogue and conversation when we're looking to solve problems for the state. You know, when you look at the actual issues that are being discussed, whether it's transportation, education, water, as you go across the entire state... You know, I think we all share the same common uh, objective, and that is we all want to make Colorado a better state. And we want to make sure that everybody's future is uh, the future that everybody's looking for. But I think right now is being able to have good conversation, making sure that we're looking to solve problems together. How does the governor fix that? Well, I think the governor can definitely set a, an example. You know, people have asked me, Greg, what would you do the first 100 days if you were governor? And I tell them, you know what, I don't know because I really haven't thought about the first 100 days. But I tell you what I do the first 10 days. And that is I would invite the leadership of the General Assembly to meet with me. But we wouldn't meet in the Capitol and we wouldn't meet in the governor's office. We'd meet on the seventh floor of the Denver Public Library. Now, what's on the seventh floor is a table that was used at the Summit of Eight where the eight heads of state sat down to talk about the challenges And what's unique about that table It is a handcrafted table by a Coloradan, and the table is round. There is no right side. There is no left side. So when we sit at this table, we're going to work on solving problems for Colorado.
2: On the campaign trail and right at the top of your website, Craig Lopez, you say that you're the only candidate with true government executive experience. Uh, That is a bold claim in a race with a state treasurer Uh, a former state treasurer, and the current lieutenant governor. Can you tell me what you mean when you say that?
4: Yeah. You know, when I was mayor, I was elected at the age of 27.
2: In Parker? In
4: Parker. I was very fortunate because not only was I the mayor, but I was a city manager at the same time. So all the department heads reported directly to me. So every issue that the town had to face, whether it's Land use, zoning, residential development, transportation corridors, public service or public safety. All those issues had to cross my desk as we move forward.
2: You were a Democrat when you were elected mayor, weren't you? I was. What briefly would you say turned you into a Republican?
4: You know, I think I'm like most uh, minorities. You know, we all are Democrats because our mom and dad's told us that we are Democrats because the Democrats look after the poor. But when I got elected, I was going to the schools, and the question I always get from the schools was, the students was, what party are you and why? And my answer was, I'm a Democrat because my mom and dad are. After a while, that answer didn't sit well with me. I decided that, you know, the students needed a better answer. So I studied the national platforms for both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And after six months of reviewing the platforms, I determined that I was truly a Republican.
2: Was there an issue? a part of your life that you think uh, sealed the deal?
4: I think it's my upbringing, you know, being strong in family and faith and being conservative, watching our dollars. You know, I come from humble beginnings, so I'm not a very extravagant spender. You know, I make sure that whatever I buy, I hold on to that. I don't wait. I'm not wasteful with any things that I acquire. And I think those were the values that I really held down as a Republican.
2: You talked about not necessarily having a specific vision for your first 100 days. Some might hear that and think, well, this, this is a man who lacks a plan, who lacks a vision. So let's get into some of uh, the issues that you mentioned. Education, for instance. You're campaigning as the candidate who will represent all of Colorado's 64 counties. And when it comes to education, rural areas face teacher shortages. According to the National Education Association, while the average teacher salary in the state in 2016 was more than $51,000, the average pay is almost $30,000 less in rural
4: areas. How would you address that? You know, I think the one of the things that we need to remember is that the state gives money to the school districts. It's the school districts that look at their salaries, their benefits, and all those types of things. I think there is a an imbalance on how we fund rural Colorado when it comes to education. The real question that we should be asking is, why is there a negative factor of $828 million?
2: This is something of an IOU that the state issued to schools after the recession. It's being paid down, but it's still in the hundreds of millions of dollars.
4: Well, I don't know that it's being paid down. You know, when I look at the budget, I don't, I'm not seeing a whole lot of funds being funneled over there. But here's the thing. Why is it that when you have a constitutional amendment that the government believes that they should have an IOU to educate our children? There's
2: a state constitutional amendment, Amendment 23, that guaranteed a certain level of funding for education. So would you uh, back a tax increase on the ballot for schools?
4: No. I think what we need to do is look at making sure that we're paying back the educational funds that we've borrowed. Where
2: does that money come from in the state budget, well, Lopez?
4: The money is in the budget. What you have to do is you have to prioritize. See, I truly believe. So, what gets cut? What gets scaled back to make sure that you pay down that IOU? I think what you have to do is first look at the totality of the budget. I'm going to tell you that in any any government budget, there's a, a percentage that is fraud, waste, and abuse. And the reason I say that is because you know people don't spend other people's money as carefully as they spend their own. Until I, t- until I see the entire operation of the government, you can look at a budget and you can look at the numbers and you can ask, how is this being spent? But one of the fallacies that a lot of people don't understand is you really have to have a conversation with people to understand how those programs are working.
2: Are you saying there are hundreds of millions of dollars of fraud, waste and abuse in Colorado's budget?
4: I'm saying that there is a level of fraud, waste, and abuse. And I, I wouldn't surprise me to find out that there's ways that we can save more money to go into education. But Do when don't you, really you think said that the,
2: Republicans in the legislature, for instance, who presumably feel similarly to you about the budget, or, frankly, a governor who uh, campaigned on cutting red tape, don't you think they would have found hundreds of millions of dollars in fraud, waste, and abuse?
4: I think if they look for it, truly look for it. Okay, they would. Do you think
2: that there needs to be any new revenue, perhaps in transportation, for instance? So the legislature seems to have struck a deal that will send some more money to transportation that may result in bonding. But there are measures headed to the ballot, one of which might raise taxes
4: for roads and
2: bridges. Would you support that?
4: You know, it's interesting that every time we have a challenge, people feel that what we need to do is raise taxes and raise money. I really don't believe that we've really analyzed all the different options that are available to us. Now, there's going to be a point in time where we might have to look and say, hey, we need to either bond, we need to look at taxes and those types of things. You know, so I'm not saying that that's off the table. What I'm saying is that we really need to evaluate. Where is this money going and how is it being used before we have that conversation?
2: I hear a lot of we have to look at this. We have to study this. We have to evaluate this from you and not necessarily here
4: are the actions I would take. Because here's the deal, right? Most politicians mm-hmm. would like to tell you this is how we're going to fix it. And then when they get in office, they realize that perhaps they didn't have all the information and all the and all the ins and outs of what's going on. I've learned from being the mayor and being in government. That if you really want to be honest and if you really want to make sure that you represent the people, that you tell them that before you make a decision, before you look at the, the solution, you're going to look at all the options because it's easy to come up with, well, let's raise taxes. It's easy to say, well, let's do this. But until you truly understand the totality of the complexity of the problem, you really are just shooting from the hip.
2: Last year, you released a nine-minute video in which you and your wife, Lisa, discussed a domestic violence incident from 1993 when you were the mayor of Parker. You've said for your part that alcohol was at least partly to blame. You were charged with physical assault. Your wife was cited for harassment. Uh, What would you tell voters who hear that and worry about the temperament you'd bring to the job?
4: You know, I made a mistake, you know, and like anybody else, you make errors. But I've learned from that. You know, in the last What 30, have you learned from that? I've learned that you want know you need to first remember that two individuals coming from different perspectives of life have a different way of looking at things. And so you need to slow down and ask a lot of questions because if you really care about someone, if you care about your marriage, you're going to work hard to build that relationship.
0: An excerpt from our May 8th conversation with Republican Greg Lopez. This year, Coloradans will elect their first new governor in eight years. Today and tomorrow, we're listening back to our interviews with the candidates. The primaries next week are open to all unaffiliated voters. Right now, let's meet Republican Doug Robinson. We caught up with him at a campaign stop.
5: Hi there. Oh, my
3: God. I see you again. How are you?
0: Robinson was at a coffee shop in Firestone to speak with Republican voters. It's in Weld County, which President Trump won resoundingly in 2016. Doug Robinson has never run for office before, but comes from a well-known political family. His uncle is former Massachusetts governor and former Republican presidential nominee Mitt Romney. Robinson's grandfather was governor of Michigan, and he says his inspiration.
5: When I was a teenager, my uh, dad left our family, and uh, my grandfather kind of stepped in to provide adult male guidance in my life. And he came from nothing, was successful in business, was three-term governor of Michigan. And he believed that, you know, basically you make a success of yourself in the world and you give back.
0: Robinson, a retired investment banker, says it's now his turn to give back. At the coffee shop, he touts his business experience, then asks for questions. They range from abortion, which Robinson opposes, to his view of homeschooling.
5: Yeah, so uh, I believe in freedom and choice and empowering parents and kids to make the right decision. What's the right decision for for them? And so I believe in all forms of education. Traditional schools may be best for some families. That's really where my kids have gone to a public uh, uh, elementary, middle, and high school. I've had four graduate from Cherry Creek High School. Uh, but that's maybe not best for every family. So we need public charter schools. We need freedom to do homeschooling. We need, uh, you know, online uh, opportunities.
0: Let's listen to our interview with Robinson, recorded May 2nd. Host Ryan Warner asked Robinson what he thought was the single biggest problem facing Colorado. It is roads. We have not
5: invested in our roads, and we have to fix them now. And I'm sure all of your listeners, like I am, are tired of sitting in traffic in Metro Denver. But it's not just about traffic here. It is about across the state. If you drive I-76, which I did last week, you are basically bouncing the whole way there. I was uh, driving from Uray to Montrose uh, two weeks ago and had to watch out for the washouts on the side of the road. We simply haven't invested in our infrastructure. You've said
2: roads. What role would transit or alternative transportation play if you become governor? Those are important too. We absolutely have to support
5: RTD and the uh, projects that they're doing. Uh, We need to get the lines built. The one that's going up to through Arvada, where they have people sitting at the stops because of federal regulation when they haven't even built it. Uh, There's no, I mean, they built it, but there's no trains going on it
2: to to comply. So, absolutely, all forms of transportation are important. You co-founded an investment bank in Denver that raised money principally for technology companies. You later sold it to a global firm. You're also founder of the nonprofit Kids Tech, whose goal is to make sure that high need students have access to technology and technology literacy. And you've said that you're uniquely qualified to help the state prepare for the jobs of the future. In areas like robotics, artificial intelligence, virtual reality. As governor, what would you do specifically? Talk to me about aligning education with what you see as the jobs of the future.
5: Those jobs are coming. We are going to see technology change every aspect of our lives. We have an opportunity to be a real leader. And it is through bringing our businesses more engaged with our high schools and our universities to really have internships, have uh, those sorts of opportunities to bring kids into those businesses so they're prepared for those jobs. Talk to me about teacher walkouts. Do you support them? I think teachers have a right to do that. Absolutely. I know some in my party have said they should not have that right. They do. They have the right to express their views. And I support and am sensitive to their concerns. I have a son who's 25 years old now. Last year he was 24. He was teaching in Denver. Guess where he was living? In my home, because he couldn't afford uh, rent in an apartment. And now he's moved out. But it is a concern.
2: Should the state be spending more money on education, we can say for sure that it's not spending what it's constitutionally committed to under Amendment 23, Yes, we need to spend
5: more on education. We need to pay down that negative factor. I don't support a huge tax increase. I think we can be more efficient and get in our schools the way we manage our schools to get more money to the teachers. But we have to spend more on public education. You don't support a
2: huge tax increase or you don't support any tax increase? I don't support a tax increase now. Okay. You know, there are those in government now, perhaps on both sides of the aisle, who say you're expecting a lot of efficiency out of a government that is restricted by measures like TABOR, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. If there was so much money to find already, don't you think Republicans in the legislature might have found it or the governor might have found it already? I recall last year the
5: the uh, uh House members came up with about four or five hundred million dollars of suggested savings in government. So I think there is some efficiencies. Unlike some of my Republican opponents, I don't think there's billions of dollars hmm. of efficiencies in the budget, but just one percent on a thirty billion dollar budget, that's three hundred million dollars. I believe we can find some of those efficiencies to, yes, invest more in our education
2: and in our roads. I I want to talk about Tabor uh, specifically because there are candidates on the Democratic side of this race who would like some changes to the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. It does seem like you'd be open to room for compromise. I mean, because you've said in the past, uh, for instance, that you would have signed a bill that took a fee out from under Tabor and freed up money for roads and schools. This was kind of clunkily referred to as the hospital provider fee. I don't want to get into the nitty-gritty, but do you think there's room for compromise on Tabor restrictions? Or would you like to see Tabor stay as is? I think there's room for discussion about all issues.
5: And uh, yes, I, what I'm committed to about TABOR is the is spending cap and the requirement that we have transparency in government, meaning that we have to go to the voters to get tax increases approved. Well, that's the Those meat of are TABOR. the fundamental things that I am uh, committed to protecting. Yes.
2: Okay. So it sounds like you wouldn't support any major changes to TABOR. Yes. As we said earlier, you are related to former Massachusetts governor and 2012 presidential nominee for the Republicans, Mitt Romney. So, as governor of Massachusetts, Romney led the rollout of what was essentially Obamacare before Obamacare. It was dubbed Romney Care, required people to buy health insurance. That state expanded Medicaid to cover the poor. Uh, these are all things. Republicans have largely fought. Where do you differ from Mitt Romney on health care, who I believe is, is one of your largest donors?
5: So I think each state, this is an issue that I don't think the federal government has done a a, a good job on solving. They've tried to solve it for 50 years. They haven't been able to do it. He came up with a plan for Massachusetts that I think is working for Massachusetts. We need a plan for Colorado. And it does include supporting Medicaid, but trying to, we should celebrate people coming off Medicaid when they have better jobs and better opportunities. But I think there's some changes we can make. I would look at managed care as a solution in uh, Medicaid spending. Uh, over 20 other states have adopted that. Price transparency. There's a lot we can do in Colorado to reduce our health care costs. Do you think that there should be the individual mandate, the requirement to buy health insurance in Colorado? I do, I do not support that. I think people uh, make their own decisions. We we provide access and care and
2: opportunity, but I don't support the individual mandate. Okay. So that uh, separates you from Romney Care in Massachusetts, for instance. Yes. On, on Medicaid, would you roll back the expansion of Medicaid under Obamacare. Really hard to roll things back,
5: right? What we need to do is change the incentives. So I would look at things, as I said, like managed care. I would look at maybe increasing the co or doing what Indiana did. They now charge a small premium to their Medicaid uh, folks every month. It's from 8 to $18 a month. And it makes a difference in terms of how
2: those people consume health care. Should there be a work requirement for those in Medicaid? Yes,
5: a work or uh, not for those that are, um, you know, elderly or kids or disabled, but those that are able- able-bodied, they should be looking for work or working or
2: volunteering. Yes, I believe that's fair to ask them. I want to ask that question with the context that there are many on Medicaid in Colorado who are working. The Most working of them. Core.
5: Working two and three jobs, I think. hmm yeah. This is a challenge in that we have a you know 2.9 percent unemployment rate, yet we have almost one in four Coloradans on Medicaid. I've met with many of them. They're working two and three jobs just to try to make it. So we need to have economic leadership to bring back to the technology jobs, higher paying jobs, opportunities for them to lift themselves off of Medicaid.
2: Does it make sense to have states individually tackling health care which is usually a market that benefits from economies of scale. It does, because the federal government
5: has not shown that they can solve it. And I don't have any confidence in their ability to do it going forward. Just the political pressures are too great. The power of the pharma
2: and hospital and other lobbies are really uh, hard to overcome. A poll conducted in January revealed that immigration is the top issue for Republicans in Colorado. You and the other Republican candidates in this race have spoken out against sanctuary cities, for instance. But I want to ask you about the coming census. The Trump administration wants to ask about people's citizenship. Colorado's governor is suing to stop that for fear that it uh, may lead people to avoid filling it out. Do you think the census should ask about citizenship? I
5: do. I think we have to have an accurate picture of what's going on in our country. And I'm sensitive to that concern, though, about people, you know, not participating. We need to make sure that there's no penalty or or impact for them doing. We want to encourage everybody to participate.
2: But we need to know who's legal and who's not in this country. And how do you think you achieve both goals, that is, to get a full picture of the country and yet ask about citizenship, which certainly under this administration is a loaded question these days.
5: Yeah, it's loaded because they're concerned that they're going to get deported. And I think we need to make clear that in Colorado, at least, we're not rounding up illegals and shipping them back. I do believe that sanctuary cities are not the right approach and that those people that have committed jailable offenses should be turned over to ICE. And that should be made clear throughout our immigrant communities that we welcome them they, we want them to have a future and a part in our society, but they need to become citizens. And if they've broken laws and they're not citizens,
0: they need to be handed over to our federal immigration authorities. GOP gubernatorial candidate Doug Robinson from our interview May 2nd. Join us tomorrow right here when we meet the Democratic candidates. And remember, if you're an unaffiliated voter and choose to vote in the primaries, only return one ballot. Thanks for joining us. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.